So you don't have anything to start this episode that I take. You don't have anything to start. I mean, there's something happening with Beetle Beetlejuice. The the star or the show? Yeah, both probably. Oh, I haven't heard I'm anything about the show. The... There's always something happening with Beetlejuice. It's a it's a there's very interesting star. That they something's happening with it right now, but it's they thought that it was going to explode or something. Oh yeah, and by the like it's how do I explain this? Beetlejuice that we see is about 50,000 years old. Yeah. It is probably long gone by now because Beetlejuice is one of the largest stars that you can see in the night sky. It is it's massive. It could fit about um I believe it's close to about a billion of our suns in itself. Just a massive star. Mm. So it is unstable to say the least. It's been doing some very interesting things for about the last year. So astronomers are anticipating it is about to die and have been yeah. watching it. And it's a it's a very interesting thing to watch. But they really have no idea because, let's face it, this is the first time we're really seeing a star of this magnitude do the things that it do. Nobody really knows. Yeah. And they said that if it were to explode, which they think because it was, what's the word? It was shining less bright than it was. Yes, they that's the were assuming term. that it was oh you're gonna hear lots of scientific terms tonight. Ooh. Um since it was shining less bright, they were assuming that it was going to explode. And they said that if Beetlejuice was going to explode, it would be visible in even the day. Yeah. Brighter than a full moon, even during the daylight for like a super long time. Yeah. Supernovas from particular cool. stars will be incredibly bright. And we do have evidence of what a supernova would look like in the night sky. The Japanese actually have very good records. I believe it was about, was it the 700s or the 1400s? Oh my god. Yeah, they, they kept very good records of seeing a supernova in the night sky. It was there for a... Oh, several months on end and one of the brightest things in the night sky we do have beautiful records of at least what a supernova would look like and uh, we can corroborate our uh, mathematics on that for what beetlejuice would look like if it did supernova my mathematics i was keeping a journal yeah i was like i can't like there should be a supernova coming up <laughs> i would love to see a supernova they're just incredibly rare and also, they do give off gamma radiation in specific directions, and we don't want gamma radiation. Those just basically, it turns out they don't hulk people out, they just kill planets. Okay, like, I was just gonna wonder if we're gonna get some superheroes. No. Real. I mean, we're gonna get some super cancer, but that's about it. No! I don't want that. Yeah. So I do have a bit of something to start us out with. Did you see that, and I did send you this in a text message, the U.S. came out with a very brief version of their UAP report. Did you I see it? I saw that, but I didn't actually take a look at it. And I've seen a few. It's so weird when they actually come out with the things. It's not. That's not the news story. Do you find? Do you like know what I'm talking about? I do. Yes. And it when they was... actually come out with it. It's bigger news when they say they're going to come out with it and then they get people on the news. Oh, it was it was super conservative in what they actually said. Yeah, it always is. But no, I saw it and you sent me that and I didn't actually look at it. I'm so, sure it said some interesting stuff. Um, yes. And it really just I'm going to I'm going to lay this out now. It alludes to a bigger story later on. 
because what they say what? is really just there are several eyewitness accounts that they can't account for and that there is something that they don't know what it is in the sky. But most importantly, because you beautiful people who have been listening to us this entire time. Hello. Hello, you people. We have talked about the fact that all of these UFO reports that have been done by the U.S. government inevitably lead to a point where they say that, oh, by the way, it's not a defense threat. So don't worry about this. We don't have to study it anymore. And in this UAP report that is only nine pages long. So I sincerely believe that anybody can go and read this document and know what they're talking about. They do say that this may pose a threat to the defense of the country so yes they did and they said therefore it requires further investigation so i do generally what they use to not release anything no it either is we don't need to release it because of that or we don't need to study it because it's not it's one of those kind of Uh, dual purposes but i do believe that we might be in a golden age of say a project blue book when it first started when remember we're going over it how project blue book when it first came out seemed like a beautiful project it was very open anybody could report where they needed to and it was looked at objectively so i do feel we're kind of getting close to that project blue book feel but at the same time like we said it is but we've already been here so we we have i don't know if that means we're moving forward or not true yeah i haven't even looked at it and it's just like government documents are but they usually just go around in circles Yeah, they really do. And more importantly, if it was important, the government would put it in private hands so that it couldn't be foibud. That's exactly it. So maybe it's just the like lead up to it that everyone gets excited. Yeah. But with that, Chelsea, are you ready to go? Yeah. Cue the music. Let's music. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe. If you are new here, I am Taylor, your friendly and lovable co-host leading you through this fringy walk that we will go on. Beside me is my sweaty sister, Chelsea. Yeah, it's pretty hot today. Hello. We are just making it through this world that is on fire right now. And today, no, no, just our part. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Our little nook of the world. Oh my God, it's so hot. Hope it makes it. Okay, go on. So normally we talk about fringe topics and today is no exception, but we're going to talk about fringe topics in a different light than we normally would. So we have talked about UFOs. We have talked about encounters, but today we are going to talk about it from a scientific point of view. So some people within the scientific community do acknowledge what has happened with UFOs for the most part, but people who are in the world of physics and astronomy have also looked at this phenomenon, specifically us in the universe in a different light. And today we're going to look at that with two different very famous, not necessarily equations, but two different famous methods of exploring the universe around us and where everybody is. So without further ado, Chelsea is going to introduce us to a man by the name of Drake, 
who is not famous for whatever he does with music. I don't know what it is, but I don't like it. <laughs> I was pulling a blank there for a second because it took me a while. That's not my kind of music, but I got you. Okay. He's, uh, isn't he the one from... He's from Toronto. That's about all I know about yeah, him. Yeah, he's from... Uh, what's the Canadian after-school special? Oh, Degrassi. Degrassi. Yes, he's from I love Degrassi. that show. I saw him on that. So I'm covering the Drake equation. And so I learned a little bit about how to read math equations that I didn't wasn't familiar with. Well, this is quite the equation. <laughs> it is. And it's something I totally didn't know. I really liked doing this. I didn't know much about the Drake equation. And it took me in a way I wasn't even expecting when I first Googled the Drake equation and the Drake equation came up. The Drake equation looks like a math equation, but the Drake equation is much more used to stimulate scientific dialogue and thought regarding the search for radio communicative life, meaning civilization, which would be sending radio frequencies that we on Earth can measure, which is pretty specific, if you ask me. And with that being said, as a Journey to the Fringe resident expert on math, maybe, or the Drake equation, I can confirm that the answer is at least one. There's one civilization sending radio frequencies out into the universe. Yes, and in a fairly dumb way as well. Yeah, it is. And that's what I don't get about the Drake equation. There's a lot wrong with it when you actually get down to it, but we'll get to that. Yeah. So since the Drake equation is meant more to stimulate scientific thought, it's obviously a very vague approximation of how many radio communicative life forms civilizations races, civilizations are out there in the milky way galaxy it's not even the universe it's the milky way galaxy it's more of a contemplation of everything that should be considered in looking for life within our galaxy rather than a serious attempt to figure a precise number so if you're using this that i'm going to tell you please use it with caution and this is, they're trying to objectively come up with a subjective number. So these are factors that can vary greatly depending yes. on how you wish to interpret the data that is yes. out there. Based on the science you're using, based on kind of everything out there. And so, okay, here's the Drake equation. And I learned a new math phrase in this. I had to specifically ask somebody that knows how to math. <laughs> so, so I'm going to give you the formula and then I'm going to go through it with you and what it means. So I'm very impressed with myself. So N equals R sub star. See how I use sub there? I didn't know that before. <laughs> times F sub P times N sub E times F sub L times F sub I times F sub C times L. So that's the equation. And now I'm going to go through what everything stands for. And I'm also going to give you the original estimates of what each one stood for and sort of what they're thought to be now, yeah. if not and sort of kind of the two varying 
degrees of what it and, is. And I find it so interesting that there's a 60 year difference between now and when the equation was written. Imagine what it'll be in another 60, just because I feel like when it comes to space, we're making even now we're making more leaps and bounds than it has been in the last 60 years, I feel right now, because we're getting more out there into space. And it's something that we know very little about. I mean, so, we know there's space. Yeah, we do know there's space. And space is something that hurts my brain if I think a little bit too much about because it's just too big. That's math. <laughs> and you'll remember is the start of the equation. N equals, to be more specific. So N equals the number of civilizations in our galaxy with which communication might be possible. At which are on our per current past light cone, which is the science that I don't understand yet. So if you remember, N is what we're trying to figure out. Is that the sum? Yeah, Did I use that's math at the there? End, yeah, yeah. <gasps> Did it right? Okay. N is the sum of all of the factors that come. Okay. Hey, I just ad-libbed that. Oh, oh good. <laughs> Basically a professor now. Yeah. I'm the journey to the fringe resident expertise on this. R sub star. I have a note for myself. It's you read it R sub star only for Chelsea to read here. <laughs> Average rate of star formation in our galaxy. So at the time this equation was written, the number was one. That's what they assumed the number was. And the current estimate for star formation is 1.5 to 3 star per year, based on accounts from NASA and whatnot, maybe astronomers. I don't know, I just wrote it down. F sub P is the fraction of those stars that have planets. So all those stars that are forming, which we're estimating today to be 1.5 to 3 stars per year. So imagine if you take the lower end or the higher end of this and put it into the equation, 1.5 to 3 stars. So the next number, the fraction of those stars that have planets. So at the time this was written, it was one fifth to half of the stars. And get this, now the current estimate is 1. All those stars, like as a rule, have, have planets. planets. Yeah. As a rule, yeah, but no one's exempt from having planets because they're looking up at the stars and they're they're hmm. seeing that like you know what pretty much every star has at least and one. It's getting planet. so much better within that time, so that's why yeah. I say it's so cool to look at like what could come in another sixty years. Like we could like have the answer to this. Well, not only that, like when we're looking at stars now, we can see what type of atmosphere the planets have that are uh, orbiting it. So we're actually yeah. even going to have a better idea of in, yeah. in 60 years, what's actually on all the planets that are orbiting these stars. Yeah, it, it's super cool. This opened up such a wide, like the Drake equation was great. It opens, even me reading it, it definitely does that. It opens dialogue to what you think is going on. N sub E is the average number of planets that can potentially support life for a star that has planets. At the time that this was written, it's a pretty large number. At the time it was written, it was one to five that they thought would be the average number of planets that could potentially support life. This, the current estimate is between three and five, but that comes with a however, because some argue that this is optimistic and it really depends on what side of the spectrum you choose to be on. And recently in 2013 in November, astronomers report that based on Kepler space mission data, that there could be as many as 40 billion Earth-sized planets orbiting in habitable zones of sun-like stars and red dwarf stars. 
11 billion of which are sun-like stars, which is a crazy number. What they call that area that they're discussing there is the Goldilocks zone. And it's it's a very lame way to say that the temperature is not too hot, nor too cold um, for liquid water. Yes. Because we we always assume when we're talking about this stuff that liquid water is absolutely necessary for us. The thing that I find with all of this as well is that they're assuming Earth-like conditions. So even then, it I'll touch on it. Even then, that greatly narrows it down. But in my opinion, I don't think that life necessarily needs Earth-like conditions. And that's Oh, and don't worry. We're going to get into that. Yeah, it's just my thinking. My brain is very non-scientific, non-math. I live in the universe, and I'm allowed to have an opinion. (laughs) This formula was come up with in the 1960s, and when they were talking about it, it was really Earth-like civilizations that they were looking for. I feel like they pretty much still... Actually, no, I can't say that, because I do go on just, I think, next sentence to say something different, or at least next sentences. So the nearest habitable like planet to us that we know of is Proxima Centura B, which is 14.4.2. Read that number wrong. <laughs> years away. 4.2. So just to throw that out there, our nearest star it really has nothing to do with this. Even if in habitable zones, some scientists argue that it will need the right mixture of elements or even elements being oxygen, not too much metal so that life can survive, stuff like that. It needs a, our mixture of how things just turned out to be on Or how we predict life to look for we yeah, only know of one us. style of life. It needs very specific things that they're looking for. Or even a moon to regulate the tide or a hot Jupiter to make bombardment of asteroids go away. Um, You could go on and on if somebody is looking to argue a rare earth theory and how you need these exact right mixture of everything perfect that earth has to go together. And then while other scientists argue that unearth-like planets may be able to support life, such as tidally locked planets close to red dwarves may be able to support life as well, or moons of gas giants may also be able to support life, which is something that they're looking at only recently that potentially there's things outside of these Earth-like planets that could potentially support life where we weren't even looking for it before. F sub L is the fraction of planets that could support life that actually developed life at some point. So at the time this was written, it was a one, which equals to 100%. So current estimation is that it may be high as life on Earth appears to have taken place as very soon as conditions were favorable for life to exist, meaning that life could be easy once the conditions are right for it to pop up. The counter argument to this is that it has never happened more than once on Earth, being that we have had life spontaneously pop up once and it's never happened again. Scientists look for this by looking for bacteria that is unrelated to other life on Earth, which I have the question to you. Is this outdated data that I got this information from? Not necessarily. Um, I recently uh, recall the huge release. This isn't even recently. This was probably 10 years ago now that NASA found... That organism uh, silica, that was not silica-based life form, yeah. Yeah. So to me, isn't that something that's not and common origin? 
I did not look at this specifically for the question at hand. As far as I know, it did not necessarily fall outside of our normal evolutionary parameters. But that's the whole thing. Like life has never had to spontaneously start outside of that original one that we know for sure happened because since that's happened, there's always been life on Earth. Uh, So that's their counter argument, I guess. They're... It's a rare a thing once to in happen. A lifetime yeah. rare thing. Yeah, because it's never happened again and everything comes from that one source, which is bizarre to me. It created so much life and evolution. So the next math version of the Drake equation, or not math for thought, is F sub I, which is the fraction of planets with life that actually go on to develop intelligent life also civilizations so at the time this was written it was one it was a hundred percent they thought a hundred percent yeah so if you're gonna if you're gonna develop life you're probably gonna develop intelligent life that was their uh, currently this is one of the most controversial what would you call this inputs of the Drake equation factors of the Drake equation. So the low value argument is that this planet so far has only produced one intelligent species from the billions that have existed on Earth. Well, I wouldn't say one intelligent species. I wouldn't even say one intelligent either. It's one species that is capable of communication. And I think that's the thing with the Drake equation is that it's only taking into account anything that is radio communicative. Yeah. Oh, gorillas are not, unfortunately. I really wish they were. I would love to see what they put for signals into space. Like, maybe they want bananas or something. Send them bananas. (laughs) Send bananas. So those in favor of the high value of this, F sub I, value note the increasingly complexity of species over time. Some may say evolving, maybe, like turtles. So we get smarter as we go on. So species evolve, get smarter, and become radio communicative. Some suggest special conditions are necessary, and others suggest that the amount of extinction events that have occurred on Earth, that life is fragile, just to give two other points on this. So planetary scientist Pascal Lee of the SETI Institute, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute, proposes that this fraction is very low, 0.0002, three zeros and a two point. He based this estimate on how long it took Earth to develop intelligent life, which is one million years ago since Homo erectus evolved, compared to 4.6 billion years since Earth formed. I mean, based on that, I wouldn't necessarily put it as low because we did get there. Yeah. And Homo erectus is life. I mean, imagine if we went to a planet, it was like Mars or something like that, like yeah. a planet and Homo erectus was there. I mean, that would be huge. And um, so I do just, find that just to be, be perfectly honest, this is also very hard to say, even with our own planet, because Homo erectus did so well that yeah. it, it eliminated all of its competitors. It didn't yeah. collaborate. Well, I mean, I this is why I said earlier, like the Drake equation really, really did a good job at what it was set out to do to promote dialogue. This, this question, yeah. yeah. Even between me and you, who are not scientists, 
But they're based, um, at the time this was written, it was 10 to 20%. And nobody said the actual number or current estimate or anything like that. However, most consider Earth not to do much communication. Though we have sent a few out into space. Yeah, the the ones we've done have been weird, to say the least. They have been really weird. And most scientists figure that it's not needed to be detected if anyone being able to detect things like these are close enough. And then the other question is, why would a civilization want to do this in the first place? Send out, I mean, we do for some reason. We want to send signals out to space to be like, hey, we're here, come visit us. Which, why? Like, why are we doing that? There's some pretty famous people who speak against us. Stephen Hawking is one. And two, look at everything we've talked about. Like, we're a pretty horrible species. We want to dominate. We want to destroy. I feel bad for anybody that comes here. Like, we have not had a good history. Things like this. We're not peaceful. Like, a lot of us aren't. And then L equals the length of time for which such civilizations release detectable signals into space. So at the time this was written, it was 1,000 to 1 million communicative civilizations. I think that's 1 million. 1, 2, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3. The L gets weird on it with length of time for which such civilizations release detectable signals. So that goes in. It's weird, the theories on this one. So I'm not really going to get into it. But that's basically how long could a civilization be producing radio communication into. And it's kind of like what we were talking about with Beetlejuice earlier, that we're seeing it only for so long and we're seeing it in the past. So how long would we be getting a blip of a radio communication from another civilization? And when did it exist? And does it still exist? It's fairly easy to look at it from the human perspective as well, because we've only been a radio transmitting civilization for about... Mm -hmm. 120 years 130 years uh, how much longer can we actually keep this up because the, exactly the or until we find yeah. something better than radio or exactly maybe radios actually really suck for transmitting across the cosmos yeah, yeah because that's only our first kind of communication so maybe we're just far behind is my whole thing about it so the original estimate to n in this equation given the knowledge at that time was equal to a rough approximation of 20 even the minimum numbers if you took the higher numbers mentioned like i said they go between like two and five and so and so on it gives you between a thousand and a million planets in the milky way alone that have intelligent life now depending on who is working with the equation you can get anywhere from one for rare earth theory up to 15 million six hundred thousand did i say that right yes you did and that is within the milky way galaxy still Yeah. And then I found this other real cool thing. So I know that I was supposed to do only a little thing on the Drake equation, but I also found this really cool thing that there is a guy who took this in the other direction and modified the Drake equation, which is an amazing thing that you can do with math that I would never wrap my head around to determine just how unlikely the event of a technological species arising on a given habitable planet must be to give the result that Earth hosts the only technological species that has ever arisen for two cases in our galaxy or in the universe as a whole, which I thought was really cool that you could turn it around like this and be like, hey, rare earth theory people, 
look at this. And since it's just so over my head, I'm just going to read this word for word. By asking this different question, one removes the lifetime and simultaneous communication uncertainties. Since the number of habitable planets per star can today be reasonably estimated, the only remaining unknown in the Drake equation is the probability the habitable planet ever develops a technological species over its lifetime. For Earth to have the only technological species that has ever occurred in the universe, they calculate the probability of any given habitable planet ever developing a technological species must be less than 2.5 times 10 to the negative 24. Similarly, for Earth to have been the only case of hosting a technological species over the history of our galaxy, the odds of a habitable zone planet ever hosting a technological species must be less than 1.7 times 10 to the negative 11, about 1 in 60 billion. The figure for the universe implies that it is extremely unlikely that Earth hosts the only technological species that has ever occurred. On the other hand, for a galaxy, one must think that fewer than 1 in 60 billion habitable planets develop a technological species for there not to have been at least a second case of such a species over the past history of our galaxy, which I think is really cool to take it and go the other direction with the Drake equation. Yeah. Like how, what would you need for there only to be like earth, which is so extremely unlikely. And I like that they put it so scientific in a way that I could never understand, but I already knew that. So now that I have that out there, I'm going to finish up quickly just with the history of the Drake equation. So not to take too much more time. It goes back to Frank Drake, who wrote the formula in 1961, as I mentioned earlier, to stimulate scientific dialogue at the first meeting of the search for extraterrestrial life at their first meeting. So it goes back further than this. So in 1959, Giuseppe Kikoni and Philip Morrison published an article in the journal called Nature, and the article was called The Search for Interstellar Communications. And in this article, the duo argues that radio telescopes have become sensitive enough to pick up transmission that may be being broadcast in the space. Now, here is some science that's over my head, but they suggest that such transmissions could be transmitted at a wavelength of 21 centimeters, a.k.a. 1420.4 megahertz. I'm pretty sure that's what MH little z stands for, which is the wavelength of neutral hydrogen, which is the most common element in the universe. Just when they're saying this, and the time that they're doing this, I just feel like it's old. Like why would anybody in the universe if this is our first form of communication, technologically wise that we think that they could pick it up? Why would this be how these are communicating? Anyhow, digress. In the article, the duo argues that radio telescopes have become sensitive enough to pick up transmission that may be being broadcast in the space, such as we saw earlier where they think you don't need to necessarily just broadcast something shooting in into space like we do. Just regular communications within your planet might be enough to be picked up if you're close enough. So by their reasoning, other intelligence may also see this as a landmark in radio spectrum. And um, my two senses I'm not a scientist, but what are the odds even being the most common element in the universe that we know of that species in an advanced or unadvanced technology for that matter would be broadcasting specifically on this frequency, whether it's on a common element or not. And look at us engaging in scientific dialogue about radio communicative life. So we're well, doing exactly what 
yeah. Drake wanted us to do. There is a specific reason why they picked that megahertz for broadcasting, and it has mm-hmm. to do with oh, what's his name? The Cosmos guy, Carl Sagan. Okay, um, I thought Carl it was Sagan. the evolution guy because you always forget his name. Oh, Charles Darwin. Yes, yeah, you I remember. actually remembered that. So Carl Sagan actually did talk about this and he said, if we are going to be looking for interstellar communication, it would have to be intelligent. And if you are intelligent, you would have something to base it off of. And hydrogen being the base atom in galaxy in the universe would be a good thing to base it off of. So they based the radio spectrum that they're looking for off of that. Yeah. I just I'm it not a scientist sense, or anything, but, but like is hydrogen like gonna be the absolute for all of the universe? Yeah, it makes up most of the universe. Is? Okay. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, it's like seventy percent of the universe. I could take okay, a quick I'm, look. I'm glad this has been proven. That that's fine. Well, sorry, it um, hasn't been proven. It's been <laughs> mathematically said. Okay. That's good enough for me because I don't like math. So seven months after these guys, Coney and Morrison, published the article, Drake made the first systematic search for signals from communicative ET civilizations. This was called Project Ozma. And he slowly scanned frequencies close to the 21 centimeter wavelength for six hours per day from April to July 1960 using a 25 meter dish of the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Green Bank, West Virginia. He monitored two nearby sun-like stars called Epsilon Iridani and Tau Ceti. Project Ozma detected no signals. And I'm not sure if this comes as a surprise or not to any of you listening or watching us on Twitch. Spoiler alert. And I do just really quick. 73% of the mass of the visible universe is predicted to be hydrogen. And 25% of the observable universe is predicted to be helium. Okay. And, what if it's helium? Well, it could be, but it's less likely. And um, at least if you are a, a civilization got to the point of being able to telecommunicate interstellarly, you yeah. would realize how dominant hydrogen is in the universe. Hydrogen, okay. 73%, 25%, that adds up to 98%. The rest of okay. the 2% is every other element on the periodic table. Okay, not that I... Outed the scientists because I'm only me not being a scientist. Yeah, but it, it does get messy when you factor in dark matter because we don't know what yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, and it's a it's a heck of a lot of stuff. You look at that, and then they're finding exceptions now. Looking at planets never would have looked at for supporting life, which have elements that are not necessarily going to be our elements. Yeah, and then we look at. You know, we have silicon-based life forms on planet Earth that we only just discovered. So that's why I was asking the question, not knowing really anything about it at all. I'm just trying to stimulate the thought. Maybe no, no. one ever thought about it. I don't know. I, I, yeah, I get that. I really wanted to cover this subject just because there's a lot of discussion that has taken hmm. place outside of the normal UFO discussion. And hmm. I, I do quite like this. Super this is cool. something... Yeah. yeah, this is something that has been discussed within academia for 60 years outside of yeah. the entire UFO it's community. Very so cool. they've come up with very interesting solutions and uh, explanations for everything going on here. Yeah, it, it's so cool. And even within this, and I know you're going to get into it. I just have like a couple more breaths. 
of a few things and then we can get on to yours. But I thought I was looking at a math equation and that when I first Googled it and then like it turned into all this, which I thought you was think, super cool. But it turns out to be a very subjective thing. And then I found out how to pronounce the math equation and then life just opened up for me. So maybe I'll become a mathematician now. <laughs> just kidding. I would never do that. So then Drake hosts a search for extraterrestrial intelligence meeting on detecting radio signals and whatnot in Green Bank in 1961 and the equation arose out of those meetings. Here's the exact quote from Drake for the method to his madness. Quotations. As I planned the meeting, I realized a few days ahead of time that we needed an agenda. He was very last minute, like some of us. And so I wrote down all of the things you needed to know to predict how hard it's going to be to detect extraterrestrial life. And looking at them, it became pretty evident that if you multiplied all these things together, you got a number, N, which is the number of detectable civilizations in our galaxy. This was aimed at the radio search and not to search for primordial or primitive life forms. I'm not going to comment on that. Ten people attended this meeting, calling themselves the Order of the Dolphin, which is also (laughs) an interesting name. Oh. In attendance was J. Peter Perriman, Drake, the namesake of the Drake equation, Philip Morrison, who was a radio amateur, Dana Atchley, who was a chemist, Melvin Calvin, who is an astronomer, Su Shu Huang, neuroscientist, John C. Lilly, inventor Bernie Oliver, astronomer Carl Sagan, and radio astronomer Otto Struve. There is a commemoration plaque in the observatory hall in Green Bay. And P.S. they called themselves the Order of the Dolphin because of Lily's work with dolphin communications. So do with that uh, info cross, what you will. Cross-species communication. Yeah. She's kind of saying, how would we communicate with something that we don't Yeah, share? Yeah, so at first I was like, what the hell? Just like you laughed. <laughs> yeah. Order Sorry, I, I thought it would be a group that had shown up to this uh, great discussion to say that dolphins are the superior race on the planet. Yeah, just like the Simpsons. And it's yeah. funny that I just said that because I really thought during this, what this whole thing made me think of was that Simpsons episode where Lisa makes that, like she takes that experiment home where she puts, what is it, like Coke in a Petri dish and like a whole like space Oh yeah, she becomes or- the god, which is based yeah. <laughs> on an a, a even older Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, I was yeah. thinking of this while I was researching this. And yeah. Okay, we have now covered the Drake equation. I don't know about all of you, but there is a very big question that is usually asked. So there is anywhere from likely two to one million communicable civilizations out there in the Milky Way galaxy. Like two was in the number As in like more than one, us. two? I just mean more than us. Okay. I thought you meant two million to one million, but okay. That no, makes I sense. just mean literal single digit two. Okay to 1 million in the observable (laughs) Milky Way galaxy. Which really brings us to the question, where the fuck is everybody? (laughs) Go ahead, go ahead. Could sit there in our skies sometimes. Yes, and sorry, when we're discussing this topic, it is without taking into account the UFOs that we see in our skies or any other anomalous events that we see partaking that we claim to be UFOs. And so much simply, to, to simply put it this way, we can't confirm where they come from. So I think it is best to say that we can't confirm these as extra stellar beings. 
Simple as that. So we can't just say that, you know what, Drake equation solved right there. We, we saw one. I mean, it's assuming, not assuming multiverse as well. It's exu- yeah. assuming all one universe. Well, yeah, not even multiverse, one, one galaxy. Yeah, that's what I meant. One, okay. one, one platform, so you may call it. I am not, surprisingly, the first person to say, where the fuck is everybody? The first person, at least, to have written down that question is a physicist by the name of Enrico Fermi, who lived from 1901 to 1954. And I find this crazy. He fully predates the Drake equation. So what is called the Fermi paradox, where is everybody, fully predates Very cool. the, uh, that's, the Drake equation. That's one of the main things that is what's wrong with the Drake equation. Is the, f- the Fermi paradox, yeah. That one, that one. Yeah. yeah. And that's that whole thing. We're talking about this right now. And all at the most conservative, you end up somewhere around 10,000 civilizations in the galaxy. Why have we never talked to them? We've been looking. Why can't we see them? And this mm. was the question that was posed. Enrico Fermi is actually a Nobel winning physicist for his work on nuclear reactors. And this happened in a conversation. Oh. in. 1951 between him and several other physicists and they were talking about ufos in the sky and how people keep seeing them and they said they came up with their their own equation of how many spacefaring civilizations should be out there and they come up with about anywhere from 5 million to 50 million in our night sky and so he says well where are they and this is the basis of the main critiques that have come for the Drake equation since that time, even before, surprisingly, the Drake equation was actually made. Yeah. This, I love this idea of the Fermi paradox because so many different people have put their minds to it and why the Fermi paradox might be correct as opposed to the Drake equation as to how many civilizations are out there, or at least why we don't see the other civilizations that are out there. So is the Fermi paradox assuming there's it rare earth? It's just us. No, that is one solution. And I am going to get into that. Okay. Okay. There are many solutions to the Fermi paradox. The Fermi paradox is simply, so where are they? Okay. So when you say, I have a formula for how many civilizations are in the galaxy, it's between X and Y. It's just the response, okay, where are they? I mean, that not be an ignorant thing to say if we're looking specifically for something that looks like us, communicates like us. And that is one of the solutions of the Fermi paradox. But it is a very noble scientific endeavor to at least say, okay, we need to figure out because math says X, why don't we see X? Because we're looking for something to look exactly like us. Well, not necessarily, but... I am going to get into that. So first and foremost, Hmm. the answer when I say, okay, where are all these civilizations that we should be seeing? It basically breaks down into two categories. Either that there's something unique about us or there is something unique about others out there. Okay. And the first one, there is something unique about us, breaks into a few categories. First and foremost, okay. what we've already talked about, it is the rare earth hypothesis. 
And what that is, is that we keep finding more and more planets out there that are Earth-like, but there are so many factors that scientists have taken into account for why life was able to form on planet Earth, that to actually take them all into account would basically say it's only likely to ever happen once in the entire universe. And when you look at Earth, there are actually like very unique factors on Earth that you might not find present on other places. We are in what they call the sticks of the Milky Way galaxy. We're on a we're on the very edge of the Milky Way galaxy. We're nowhere near the center where you're going to see a lot of gamma ray bursts. You're going to see a lot of radiation in general. And you're just going to not see a lot of stability because solar systems would be colliding with each other a lot. We also have Jupiter just outside of our our asteroid belt, which protects us. And this is fully known by most scientists, at least when you look at astronomy, that Jupiter protects us fully from asteroids and comets because it will take those collisions on or at least affect the orbit of those things to avoid Earth. Next up, we also have Mars right before us that also takes impacts for us. And it is, if you ever look at Mars, it looks pretty impacted because it is. On the other side of us, you see a very weird planet in Venus, which actually it rotates the opposite direction of everything else in the solar system, which is very odd. But mm. it's we don't know what factor it might play in our development, but it likely has some sort of factor. And it would feel like everything goes yeah, into a factor of exactly. our development in, in and everything, not only our solar system, but also Milky Way and the yeah. universe. And most importantly, yeah, exactly. And I'm not, this is a very short list of all of the factors that are taken into life forming on Earth. But what many people consider absolutely tantamount important to this, first off, we have a very stable sun that we orbit around, as opposed to, say, Betelgeuse or Hmm. any of the other larger stars out there. So that is going to give us more time to develop. And we have what is considered a very large moon for in ratio to our planet. A lot of people believe, at least scientifically, that large moon is a huge factor in first off protecting us from asteroids and second off creating the tidal pools where life actually formed on our planet. So, and if you look, we only know of, I guess, technically eight planets in the universe that uh, we could actually talk about moons around them. And we are the only one with a moon that is that size. Like it is the largest ratio. It is the largest ratioed moon in our entire solar system. It is not, it is not the largest moon in our solar system. That would be Ganymede. It is because Jupiter is so big. The moon is actually the uh, the largest ratioed okay. uh, moon to planet in the solar system. Interesting. And especially a, a weird thing that w- is likely incredibly rare in the universe is the fact that our moon creates a solar eclipse. It is exactly the right size and the right distance from ourselves and from the sun to block out the sun at certain points. Our universe? It's... It, it was it's would likely, they know that though do they know that for sure they don't know it just it seems like it would be incredibly rare yeah. like to have the perfect ratio and in fact it's not even something that earth will always have like it depends fully on how close the moon is to us right now it's slowly gonna fade away like it's gonna move further and further away from us so in fact in several million years there will not be solar eclipses on earth that's super crazy yeah and i didn't know that um, I'm going to wait to share my input until the end. 
Okay. Just that in itself, like maybe that somehow is an important factor in intelligent life being created. Like the fact of that unpredictability, but we don't know. That's and that's the, the thing whole. That came up with the Drake equation as well with the moon that it appears. And it might be people just assuming we have it. So other people may need it to create tides to create Earth. Don't really know otherwise, right? Yeah. But the moon was one of those factors. Yeah. Well, and even, sorry, one I missed too is the fact that the Earth is not a straight up and down bin. Yes. It, it's, it's on, it's on an angle. Up. It's like 13 and a half degrees, which gives us seasons. Season. It creates yes. seasons. And that might be absolutely necessary for the creation of life. But that 13 and a half degrees that we have is probably pretty rare. Like, it just seems so weird that we just happen to get that. Yeah. So the first answer to the Fermi paradox is Earth might, in fact, just be so unique in the universe with all those factors that it is, in fact, the only th place that could get intelligent life to the point that we're at. Hmm. Now, the next one that gets kind of depressing is the great filter. So why don't we see anybody out there? The great filter. And that is widely considered this thing that prevents life from advancing to the point of being oh. a communicable civilization. And just so you know, there are over 100 answers to the Fermi paradox. We are just going to go over a base few that mm. kind of seem like the best answers. Yeah. But there are still scientists and professors working on the answers to this. And most importantly, science fiction authors. This is by no means an intensive look at the list. Sorry, we just talked about the rare earth. I need to talk to you guys all about something that really makes us question this. So question rare earth? No, not rare earth, what we would be expecting. So and it's something that was proposed oh. by a man named von Neumann. I can't I didn't look up his first name, but it's called a von Neumann probe. And basically what he says is a civilization that wants to be intergalactic or interplanetary wouldn't necessarily actually need to travel to another planet itself. So long as its technology got to a place in time that it could drive itself in space, it's actually a lot easier just to send your genetic material to a new planet to populate it. And they've always predicted that you could... Sorry, they, they haven't always predicted that. It has been predicted that you would very easily be able to populate the entire Milky Way galaxy in about a million years. Yeah, that was another thing with the Drake equation that it wasn't taking into account was, what's the official word for that? Interstellar um, civilizations or interplanetary civilizations. Yeah, um, like seeding other planets, yeah. essentially. Yeah, but that is really like we are not that far away and you don't need to be able colonization. to colonization. Yeah, colonization okay. plan. Okay. Uh, you don't need that good of technology or spacefaring equipment to actually colonize the entire Milky Way galaxy. You just need time. The universe is about just under 14 billion years old. With the idea of the von Neumann probe and the age of the universe, you would predict at least one of these civilizations that we look at with the Drake equation because we shouldn't be the first with how old the universe is. Somebody should have populated the galaxy by this point. So this is another question that the Fermi paradox really says is if it's not even just communication, it's why hasn't somebody populated the galaxy? The next question after we look at the rare earth is the great filter. 
And when we look at the great filter, the question really is, there appears to be or there might be some sort of point in evolution of a civilization that is incredibly hard to get past. And the real question when you look at humanity is which side of this filter do we fall on? Did we happen to get past it already? Or are we on the inevitable side of we are going to hit the filter and collapse at some point? And when you're looking at the great filter, there are so many places that this really could be. So first and foremost, you need a planet that's capable of harboring life in a star's habitable zone. Maybe that is the filter. We don't know. On that planet, we need life itself to develop. From that life, we need something that's able to reproduce using such molecules as DNA and RNA. We need simple cells, prokaryotes, to evolve into more complex cells, eukaryotes. From there, we need multicellular organisms to develop because I don't think we're going to see single cell evolution being able to communicate with us. That, of course, is a very human way of looking at it, but nonetheless is something that we do. After that, we believe sexual reproduction is absolutely necessary. Complex organisms capable of using tools need to evolve. Organisms that must create advanced technology for space colonization needs to develop. And a spacefaring species must go on to colonize other worlds and star systems. Any one of those things could be the inevitably hard filter to get through that just is impossible within the universe as we know it. And scientists at least have thought about the Great Filter for a long time. And in fact, they were curious if we were to ever see life on another planet, specifically Mars, where we are looking for it, it might give us an idea of where the Great Filter actually lies. If we were to find single cell organisms on Mars that had gone extinct long ago, that might show us that that in fact is where the Great Filter is. So we passed it. However, if we saw evidence that there was a species or a civilization that passed us, that actually worries people a lot because that shows that we are inevitably approaching the great filter. The next solution to the Fermi paradox is a time answer. First, maybe we're really early to the party. We believe we know a lot about the universe, but at the end of the day, we really don't. We just have a lot of math equations to explain how the universe formed, or at least where everything's come from the Milky Way onwards. And maybe only very recently had the universe become conducive to advanced civilizations forming. And in fact, we are the first species that may be able to communicate interstellarly. It's kind of a sad answer because that means that we would never actually be able to find anybody to communicate with. But at the same time, it makes a lot of sense. 14 billion years does seem like a long time, but you got to factor into account stars take a long time to form and to get into a point where they are stable. On the other end of it is another answer that is very similar, but it is maybe we're actually late to the party. So what if all these factors that are conducive to intelligent life actually have gone and we are just the remnants of a spacefaring civilization and we'll never find anybody for they have all died out by this point? Very sad answer, both of those, but um, nonetheless, answers that are out there. The next answer, we're starting to get into the answer that maybe we can't communicate with others instead of us not being the only ones out there. So this one is maybe the distances are too large for where we are in the galaxy. And this is an interesting factor in the sense that we are, like we talked about, 
on the edge of the Milky Way galaxy. We are on one of the offshoots that uh, is fairly far away from the center. With the Milky Way galaxy being several thousand light years across and us only being communicable on the galactic level for about 70 years gives a very short time frame to actually respond. So if we are in a spot for actually looking and receiving this information, we have such a short time scale that it's very normal to have actually not received anything. And most importantly, if it's required to be in a stable spot for several thousand years to actually get send and receive communications, does that actually seem likely? Like how long can we actually keep up our level of technology? Can we actually keep it up for several thousand years? The next answer, as I have put it, is they're fucking aliens. They're going to communicate in a way that is either foreign to us that we didn't think of or in a way that we wouldn't actually interpret it as communication. So if you are a species that lives for 10,000 years, if you were to communicate over a one year time, a fairly in-depth answer that you sent out to everybody, we likely would not be able to interpret that entire that entire reception as one communication. Or let's say on the other end of it, you have a very short time scale. Us receiving it might just think that whatever you had sent to us was gibberish. On that end of it, it does seem it's very hard for us to say what we're looking for. And that's just talking about radio communications, because, again, we're talking about radio communications being the end all be all of all of this. And let's face it, maybe maybe these aliens didn't actually or these other spacefaring civilizations never even invented radio communication. It does. It doesn't seem like it's absolutely necessary to get to the next step in technology. And maybe radio signals at the end of the day are a fairly terrible way of communicating. And in fact, we were talking about Carl Sagan earlier. He said we should actually be looking for other things. He proposed what you actually should be looking for in a uh, for civilizations is uranium in stars, because it's not something that would naturally occur in a star. So Carl Sagan proposed that maybe instead of looking for radio signals, we should in fact be looking for signs of uranium in stars that have planets around them. Because if somebody wanted to communicate in a much more stable way with other civilizations, a much better way of doing that would be to have some sort of long-term radioactive decay happening in your star that wouldn't naturally occur. But that's just one idea. When we're looking at spacefaring civilizations, nobody really knows what we're looking at because we only have one idea of what a spacefaring civilization would look like and it's based off of us. And at the end of the day, maybe we are actually an outlier. And that actually ends up being my next answer that we suck at looking at it. So we don't really know what we're looking for. And well, exactly. And that's my whole that. thing with the Drake equation. Like we're looking for these very specific radio signals where we're saying, yes, it's going to be this specific thing. But what if it's not what yeah. are the odds and that it's going to be that specific signal to follow on that is the fact that maybe an alien civilization that is spacefaring doesn't actually want to communicate. At least an assumption in the Drake equation is somebody that reached that point is going to be communicating. And maybe they're not. And there are maybe smart. Few, yeah, there are a few different ways to look at that. First and foremost, it may be the fact that the civilization believes that they 
might not be the highest rung on the ladder. So they wouldn't want any other civilizations to know they're out there. So they wouldn't be openly communicating. And that's one of the things with the Drake equation. And it's not something that I covered with it because I thought it was dumb. And it said, higher you are technological wise, the more likely you are to overcome any sort of means of destruction. So they could be an infinite civilization that's never going to die because it's overcome any sort of destruction and therefore maybe they're not sending out signals because they know not to do that yeah and actually one of the very interesting ones that i like a lot for the answer to the drake equation with the fermi paradox is that when you reach a certain point in your technology you're going to realize we actually live in a terrible time in the universe for computations because it's too hot so i know uh, that specifically right now (laughs) exactly so a truly technologically advanced civilization would likely go dormant for a long period of time so they could wait for the hotter parts of the universe to actually end and they could reawaken as a technologically savvy civilization because it gets to a point where we can actually cool everything properly Meaning like uh, banks? More or less more stars die than there are now. Okay. Universe is a hard thing to grasp. Yeah. It's science-y. I know. And and we're not even talking about the universe. We're just talking about our galaxy. And even then, we're talking about so many stars. It's just ridiculous. It's very science-y. Yeah. That's why I threw that into the Drake equation. Because even the Milky Way is just like unfathomable amount of... It would take us 100,000 years to cross it with yeah. our, with uh advanced technology sorry not even our current technologies well we got we just got out of the solar system and i am i right with one of our satellites yeah the voyager a few years ago yeah voyager 2 just left the oort cloud so um that that's a good thing the other thing too is not just the idea that these civilizations would be communicating to us but they just wouldn't care and instead of focusing on external exploration They may, in fact, be moving to a more technologically advanced idea. And let's say that they've moved into the idea that the world of the Matrix so that they've built something for themselves to live forever. The other part of it is with this idea of non-communication is either one of they would be scared of us and especially us trying to communicate with other civilizations. Don't blame them. Might be considered a very dick move. In the sense that we're just trying to find other areas that would have materials that are good for building a civilization. Yeah, I mean, afraid of us, yeah. I mean, that's a good point. I don't feel like we would ever just be looking for something. Well, and every time... Look at our history. Every time we find new humans on Earth, we sure as hell take their stuff and kill them. Yeah, humans are actually really awful. So as of with everything that we've seen, I mean, you come in peace, we'll like shoot the shit out of you. Yeah. And from that, we'll know you come in peace. Exactly. So there could be very good intentions of a species trying to make contact, but are we? No. Yeah. I mean, there are some peaceful people on this earth, but they're not in charge, unfortunately. And on the other end of it, it might be that there is a civilization out there that is conquering the galaxy that we don't know about. And other civilizations do know about it and they're hiding from them. So they would not be openly communicating. Oh, that's a good, there's so many, that's what I like about this. There's so many different factors to think about. Those are for the most part, like when you're thinking about other civilizations out there, 
what scientists have kind of come up with as hmm. general answers to the Fermi paradox, why it is that we're not seeing that. Now, there mm -hmm. are Sorry. some more obscure answers that I really like. First and okay. foremost, not for these. the simulation hypothesis. Oh, yes, that's my favorite. Because it's pretty easy if you're in a simulation to just make only one simulation and no other spacefaring yep. civilizations out there because that would be too hard to actually run the program on. Yeah, and simulation theory is my, one of my favorites. Simulation theory is really weird. And if you look at the science behind it, we're more likely than not to live in a simulation yeah. just because you can create simulations within simulations. So if you're looking that, at that infinite loop of simulations within simulations, you're more likely to live in a simulation than the original place that yes. creates the simulations. Love it. That's one of my favorite ones. It's just like such a like mind. Yeah. There, there's that one to think about that's really like messes with your mind or like how big is the universe? Yeah, it's best not to think about it because we don't even know how big the universe is. When we actually talk about the universe yeah. in this scale that we can scientifically talk about, they talk about the observable universe because yeah. the universe has been expanding in all directions and expanding faster than the speed of light for quite some time now. And we can't actually see the entire universe. We can only see what is within light year distance of uh, when the Big Bang occurred. And like, where is it expanding to? Like In itself. Yes. Oh, that hurts my brain. Yeah, I agree. It's best not to think too hard on that. What does Sometimes a balloon do. expand into? Sometimes it keeps me up at night when I have nothing else to think about. And what may be my favorite answer to the Fermi paradox? It's the zoo hypothesis. And okay. that is that we are an interstellar nature zone that is left oh, Is that like South Park? Yeah, that is actually the answer on that episode. It is we are a planet in this universe that is left to naturally occur as either something to study or something that is just left to supposed to be like naturally occurring like our nature reserves. Yeah, I like that one too. So those are just some of the answers to the Fermi paradox. And it's great questions and answers to go through. First off, it is. how many civilizations should be out there? Second off, why aren't we actually seeing them? And there is one more answer that tends to go untalked about within the scientific community. And that is that we are, in fact, communicating with them because they are seeing us all the time. Yeah, like the regular people just don't know about it. Yeah. Or, you know, we are just seeing them like the UFOs. It's all a possibility, right? We don't. Yeah. We don't have all the answers. Yeah. And God, we could go into so much more. There are actually other things that we might be seeing that are non-radio communicative tech civilizations, but exactly. instead are showing evidence of their technology. So if you um, look out at our galaxy, there's something called Tabby Star. And Tabby Star has a very weird point where it gets blocked out from our view. And we're not able to understand why necessarily at this point. And one of the answers as to why it might be getting blocked out at certain times when we're viewing it is what's called a Dyson sphere that gets into Kardashev type civilizations. Kardashev civilizations are a proposed way of categorizing advanced civilizations. Kardashev type one being able to harness all of the energy on its planet. Kardashev scales type two are able to harness all the energy coming from their star and Kardashev type three are able to harness all of the energy in their galaxy. So a Dyson sphere is a proposed way of harnessing 
energy coming out of a star by surrounding it with more or less solar panels. And that is one at least described possibility of what's happening with Tabby Scar is it's a Dyson sphere around it. That's the one where I'm pretty sure you just described the one where we thought there was something going on because it was dimming, right? Dimming. Yeah, it dims. It dims yeah, and we don't know why. Okay. There, there are other explanations for it, but that's one of the answers. And then there's an area of the night sky called the Boothes Void. B-O-O-T-E-S Void. And it's an area of the night sky where we basically have a calculation of how many galaxies or stars we should be able to see in each area of the night sky. And this one is significantly lower than what you would actually predict to see. So much so that it's just like a weird vacant void in the sky. And it is believed at least one answer to why there is a bigger void than should be there is because it would be a Kardashev type three civilization that has actually taken up all the energy coming from these galaxies. So these are all like super weird ways of actually looking for other advanced civilizations. It's fun to talk about. I really like the sci-fi side of all of this, especially that science takes it seriously. It's super cool, especially that this dialogue is going on, but like science doesn't want to take UFOs seriously. Well, when it's they're, getting closer. Yeah, it is getting closer. But these things are obviously defying any scientific, would you call it, means of anything. that Scientific is study. Scientific study, I guess, known to us in the way it moves and basically all of its being. That we're still trying to quantify things to airplanes in the sky where we see UFOs that are popping in and out of space and time and defying laws of physics and stuff like that. But we're trying to put does life on other planets exist is a matter of us existing within our world of physics and radio communication and things like that, which is a little bit science wants everything to exist within its our parameters of what we know to be true. Obviously, that's what makes it science because know it to be true and obviously things outside of that that are very much a part of our reality we just don't well we like provable hypotheses so. yeah. I, I think that's a good way to put it we like provable yeah. hypotheses and we can only prove hypotheses really from a human perspective and if we're putting them on other things that are not humans especially something that is at least at our intelligence level, it might not be predictable in a way that humans find satisfactory. Exactly. So there's a whole part of this that to me just isn't fitting because it's only taking into account what we see as provable by our science. So there's, I mean, what percentage of that would it be, do you think, that everything's fitting into our box of reality? I think it would be slim, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> It's so hard to actually say because we have exactly one sample size and it's us. That's it. And we don't know what else is out there. So we have we have to when we're looking out into the night sky for this stuff, we have to go with the assumption that somebody would try to or at least would be like us and would communicate like us and would try to put a thing Okay, you think of it like this, like, yeah, okay, there's a civilization exactly like us, where if it's an infinite universe, which I think is, that's the theory, right? The universe is infinite? Uh, more or less, yeah. If the universe is infinite, if you think about it, then Earth, this exact situation with us having this conversation is infinitely 
happening because the universe is infinite. But yeah, it will repeat itself. That conversation is repeating itself infinitely and, because and the universe this is infinite. exact conversation, but with why at the end of every word is yeah. happening somewhere in the universe. As many other so different variations of it yeah um is happening it infinitely because that's what you get when you get infinite yeah. right um and just i sorry this is one i i wanted to add because it's not actually yeah. on it's not talked about a whole lot but yeah. i believe what if in fact three-dimensional beings are actually rare in the universe and that's why we can't actually find anything well, exactly. And that's the thing with UFOs. Like, I think they're obviously existing in another plane of existence and it's not yeah. taking into account for that. Like I was saying with the infinite universe, then there's another, let's just say, yeah, there's another Earth. We're having this exact same conversation. The many other infinite Earths have sent out the same exact pattern into the universe, yet they sent it out just millisecond to the left we miss it or you know and, and especially if we're talking about a repeating universe like flawed. that yeah it would be too far away for us to see it yeah because it's, it's flawed we, because we it's can only see out 14 billion years yeah. around us in the universe and with our satellites we can only look at so much of a part of the sky so if we miss yeah. it by a second and then that civilization is gone yeah well, and I know you were told this because I was as well growing up, like that star up in the sky, the light coming from it was uh, created when the dinosaurs still roamed the planet. So, so cool. Those spacefaring civilizations out there would have had to have been 65 million years behind us if they were transmitting it from them, which means if they continued on surviving, why the hell haven't we seen them or at least been populated by them? Because yeah. 65 million years is a hell of a lot of time to populate the entire galaxy. Well, we only sent it out how long ago? I mean, it would take another how long to to reach any other sort of civilization, even within the Milky Way galaxy. 4.2 light years. Yeah, that's a long time, I think. Well, to actually get there, depending on what type of exploration you have, we're probably another couple hundred years based on the Voyager's trajectory. Yeah. And even then... I don't know where we would actually be on an actual non-satellite going. It's like something that uh, is actually functioning. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to touch on quickly, which we did in philosophy, which is not a science, it's a, another thing, was intelligent design, and which I think is fitting for talking about life on Earth. I know most, I was argued this in a philosophy class in a Christian college, so they were arguing intelligent design behind a god creating earth but i think it's very fitting i like to think of intelligent design more as there is order in a universe being that yeah like i and i also think they used it <laughs> being in a christian college was just a blessing they used it in a way to say yeah we're the we're rare earth we're the only people on the earth yeah i like to think of um intelligent design more behind how would i put it i don't believe in a god i don't believe that we're the only planet but i do believe that there is intelligent design in the universe because you look at how intricate life is on earth and yes i do think that life is a rule where there is going to be um life is going to 
pop up where it can and where life is conducive to it. And I don't think that it's always going to be necessarily the way that we see it, because I think the rule behind the universe is to create life, not just the way we see it, but just all forms of life. And you look at how intricate cells are and how, how, what's the word I'm looking for? How delicate life is on earth and how all these things come together. The people looking saying we need the moon for life here to control the tides and we need water. We need everything that we have here in order to have life. That just, I think that showing all those little intricate things that just work together to make life here show intelligent design. But I don't think that this is the only place that it yeah, happens. Yeah, it's not particularly unique. Yeah, it's not unique, but I think that that shows intelligent design, which is a really cool thing to look at because things are so very intricate even on Earth. But I don't think that it is conducive yeah. to the very specific conditions we have here. I think that it could pop up in all these other like weird situations in the universe. But there are certain weird things about life on Earth that I just find so bizarre, like the fact that we developed sexual reproduction is so hard to comprehend in my mind <laughs> like two things at the same time had to develop and say we need to have sex with each other to procreate yeah. just inherently knowing that like doesn't that say intelligent design though it does a little bit but not like, necessarily yes, it's, like yes it, it's it, nature yeah. it's natural but like me that's like i don't know like the fact that nature like wants life to live on like to me that's everything's so intricate to each other i don't feel like it's just coincidence though yeah. it really could be alan watts who is a very prolific speaker he died several decades ago but he did some very interesting speeches on the universe and i always think he had it right that the universe desires to experience itself and that's you are that's the manifestation it. of you, the yes. universe experiencing itself. Yes, that's my exact thought on everything. And I've never heard it put so eloquently. I've never known how to express my feeling on it. My thought has always been, like I said before you said that, is that life wants to be every form of life. That's why even here on Earth, you see Mother Teresa's and you see serial killers just because every, every, every experience needs to be had. Yeah, needs to be had. Exactly. And that's exactly what he's and i really like that actually so there you have it the drake equation paired up with the fermi paradox both there should be a shit ton of things out there and there is paradoxically nothing out there as far as we can tell yeah, so far we're it definitely a break from what we usually talk about but still i love this topic it's really it, fun it, it opened up, up to a so lot of things. dialogue yeah which is what i really liked about doing this it really opens up the conversation about like what do you think and i was thinking like what if we did the drake equation how many do we think how many planets inhabited out yeah. there would there be and they're constantly tweaking the drake equation with it what, depends on what who's modern doing it. yeah and what modern day says about certain things because before they yeah. in fact thought that planets were incredibly rare and nowadays, when we're looking up at the night sky, we realize pretty much every every star has a planet around it, at least one. Yeah, space is pretty crazy. Thank you, everyone, for listening tonight. We are going to try to survive this week. And when you next hear from us, we will likely be talking about paranormal phenomenon and its investigators, a very famous couple known as the Warrens. 
So thank you everybody for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. Uh, we are a new podcast, and we would very much so appreciate if you could like, subscribe, share, and if possible, provide a five-star review or some sort of feedback if you feel like there's anything we could be doing better. But five-star review is the best thing you can do for us, as it does help, unfortunately, in the world of algorithms. Yes. Please and thank you. And you can follow us on social media at Journey to the Fringe. We don't have all of them, so try searching it. Instagram, we're on Facebook. Right now we have a subreddit. And if there's anything you want to hear in the future, feedback, anything, you can email us at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. If there's something we're missing that you'd like to see us on, please let us know. We only know what we know. So we're only and in so many places. Also, if you feel that we have gotten anything wrong, please let us know there as well, as we would really like to have the best information possible. We are mm -hmm. only as good as our research. And if you can provide anything further, it's a real help. Or if you want to share anything, we yes. will definitely, we're open to shares. So yes, thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.